Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 23, 25 through 28. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey friends, good to be back with you. Uh, I have been traveling over the last month, uh, preaching and teaching in a lot of churches all over, and it's been a joy, but there is really no place I'd rather be than here with you. Well, maybe except Italy. I did go to Italy. That was pretty nice. But besides that, I am very glad to be back with you. If you're new to our church in the last month, uh, I haven't met you yet. So my name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here, and I'd love to get to know you, and we're so glad you're here. Let me just begin uh, once more with a word of prayer. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for uh, your beauty, your goodness, your kindness. I thank you for uh, the, the gift of music and the ability to lift our voices and hands and sing to you. And I pray that you would now fill us with your spirit and increase our joy and our faith and our hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, This morning, if I were to ask you on your bulletin to jot down uh, the three things that make you the most upset or most angry, I wondered what you would write down. I'm not asking you to do that. But if I were to, um, some of you may, you know, you're may take you a while to think about what that is. Some of you may be like, only three, right? (laughs) And in fact, asking annoying questions at the beginning of a sermon, I'm going to add that to the list as well, right? But what? But here's the, here's the thing. Most of our anger, most of the things we get upset about are probably sinful and probably unjustified. But even in that case, what we get angry about reveals our values. It reveals something that we value that is not happening. Okay? So let me ask then this question. What does Jesus get upset about? What actually makes Jesus angry? In the Gospels, we see that Jesus is revealed as a very real human. He is God incarnate. He is both God and man. And so as a real human, he has emotions just like us. And the the Gospels make it clear that his primary emotion, the emotion that he experiences and expresses the most is actually compassion, that his life is marked by compassion. But occasionally we do see that he is upset, he's frustrated, he's angry. And the question is, when that happens, what do the text tell us is going on? Well, there's just a few things that make Jesus upset, according to the Gospels. 
One is, or the primary one, is that when other people are not living in compassion towards others, and in fact, in some ways, all of them can kind of be subsumed under that. Like if you, if you know that there's times when he sees, he gets upset when people are being prevented from getting to God, like children or blind men or lepers. And you know the famous incident where he uh, is actually turns over tables in the temple. What's going on there? Well, he's upset that people are being prevented from getting to God that there's these financial ways and and blockades in a sense that are preventing regular people from accessing God through prayer. And he also gets upset at death. We see him at Lazarus's death that he is grieved and even angry at death. But maybe most unexpectedly, probably the primary way we see Jesus being upset in the Gospels is that when he encounters people who have holiness without wholeness, when he encounters people whose lives are actually religious, but their heart is not attuned to God. Well, today we are continuing our series that we're calling Formed. And I have heard from so many of you, and I know Pastor Kevin has been very encouraged as well, that God is at work, and there's so many people that are responding well to these messages about being formed. And the idea is, behind this series, is that we're looking at ways in which the world and our sinful nature tries to conform us to its ways, to its patterns, and then to ask instead, how does Christ want to form us into his image instead? And that's a great thing to ask. And today, what we're going to be thinking about together is this nuanced and subtle way that I think we're tempted to be conformed to this world in this area of what we can call holiness without wholeness. And I'll get back in just a few minutes to what that means. But to to understand how we got ourselves in this situation, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of human history And just look for a moment at this story from Genesis chapter 3 that explains a lot about who we are as humans. And actually, in our next sermon series, I'll be coming back to this text, so we'll have more time to to talk about Genesis 3. But for today, I just want to highlight that when humans first disobeyed God, that broke their relationship with God, and then asked the question, what actually happened? Well, if you look at Genesis 3, you can turn the Bible, we'll put it on the, on the screen as well. Here's what happened in Genesis 3, starting in verse 7. It says, after they had rebelled against God, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So at the very beginning of this turning point in human history, what happens? Well, notice that the initial results of what we call the fall of humanity from this perfect relationship with God, the initial results are shame and fear. Shame and fear. Other results will come later, death and deception, but these at the core of our brokenness are these two destructive and shaping emotions of shame and fear. 
And when we as humans stop trusting in God and when we have a broken relationship as a result of that, we also, just like these first humans, experience shame and fear. And today, if I invited you to be honest with yourself and start paying attention to why do you do a lot of the things you do and why do I do a lot of things I do, underneath a lot of it, if you start paying attention, are both shame and fear. This is a fundamental human reality. So here's the question. How do we as humans, from Adam and Eve down to us, when we experience fear and shame, how do we process that? What do we do with that? Well, the answer, we saw it right in those verses and we see in our own lives, we hide. We cover up literally and figuratively. We all learn ways from the earliest days of childhood when our experiences of fear and guilt and shame, we learn ways to cope and to hide. We learn ways, some of them more successful than others, to to show up and to function in life so that we don't have to face that shame and fear and so that other people won't see those things about us that make us feel fear and shame. And just like Adam and Eve, we as humans, we instinctively hide and we cover. And then over the months and over the years and over the decades, we get so used to this and we get so good at it that it becomes normal and we usually even lose self-awareness that that's actually what we're doing. And we all become what the Bible calls hypocrites. Now that word doesn't mean quite what you think it means. You may be saying, I'm not a hypocrite, but what the Bible means by hypocrite, we use that English word to mean someone who's kind of living a double life, and that's certainly not a good thing. But when the Bible uses the word hypocrite, it means, and what Jesus means by it, it goes all the way back to the ancient Greek theater, and it really just means being an actor, one who puts on a mask, one who experiences the world through this filter of a mask. These masks can take all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors. They can be aggressiveness. They can be passivity. They can be confidence. They can be insecurity. Different personality types manifest them in different ways. They can, these masks can look like being aloof or being overly friendly. They can look like being introverted or extroverted. They can be, as one of my psychology professors said in seminary, they can, you can show up as an over, where you're kind of over people, or you can show up as an under. This mask can be a grouchy one or an overly cheerful one. It can be a cynical and skeptical one. It can be one who's easily swayed by any of anybody else's opinions. And we craft these masks carefully over time. And it doesn't mean that we're completely fake. I mean, we're still underneath there somewhere, just like an actor is, but we learn to put on these masks because of the power that we feel of both fear and shame. And in the counseling and spiritual formations worlds, we often call this a false self, versions of ourself that we show up, that we utilize, and that we relate to other people. And the result of this shame and this fear leading us to adopt these masks is that we lose wholeness. We become split. There are two versions of ourselves. There's the exterior version that everybody sees, and then there's the interior version, the true self on the inside. And for some, this disjuncture, the split is massive. 
for others and over time through maturity and through therapy and through spiritual healing, we can experience more unity between them. I'm not saying that everyone is fake and dishonest all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that because we are sinful and because we have all been wounded and shamed and have so much fear that we all live with this fundamental reality of being split, that who we are on the outside is never exactly who we are in our deepest inner person. And this is so fundamentally true of us that it can go on for decades and you can become completely unaware about ourselves. Our masks can become so fixed and so thick. And right now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me, (laughs) I've got some really bad news for you. That's the surest sign that you just don't know yourself. Because this is a fundamental human reality. And the thing is, this this is one of those patterns of the world that seeks to counterform us. The world tells us and encourages us to say that what we look on the outside is what really matters. That what really matters about us is what people think of us. That what we look on the outside is the most important thing about us. And the world and our own nature encourages us to keep up these masks. And that happens both inside the church and outside the church. Maybe your parents discouraged you from really looking inside because they couldn't face from their own fear and shame what you would find. We've all been hurt And maybe someone has seen that dark side of us and that only increased our sense of isolation. I mean, I feel this. I feel like I live a pretty open-hearted life where I'm vulnerable and have close friends of all sorts that I share very honestly with. But when I'm, you know, in my deepest moments, I know there are doors of fear and regret that I don't want to open either. And here's the problem that being split, living this non-whole life, this disjuncture between who we are in the inside versus the outside, it is completely destructive to ourselves and to others. It is death by a thousand cuts because God cannot and will not relate to our false selves. Do you ever feel like you just cannot get through to God or to other people? It very well may be it's because the mask is so thick and this disjuncture between who you really are and how you show up and you're so self-deceived in it that you God's God doesn't want that. He doesn't want to relate to that false self. And when we move beyond Genesis 3, where we see that this is what happened to us, we see that God keeps talking about this issue. Because he and how he talks about it is that he wants from us a wholeheartedness. He wants from us a, a, an integrity, a, a completeness between who we are on the inside and the outside. I think of, for example, in the book of Numbers, when you have the 10 spies that God uh, sends into uh, the promised land to spy out to see if the, sorry, 12 spies, send, send them out. And most of them do not, uh, you know, they're very fearful of it. But one man especially is commended for believing in God. And you know what, how he's commended? Caleb? He's commended because he is wholehearted in his belief in God. 
There's a consistency. And then later when the people of God are prevented from entering the promised land and everybody above 20 years old is going to die in the wilderness rather than enter the promised land. Do you know why God says that's going to happen? It says, because they have not followed me wholeheartedly. They're doing some things on the outside, but their hearts are not with me. And all of this is, is really summed up in one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament, what we call the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, where um, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is consistent. He is whole. And so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus, you may recall, reiterates this as the most important commandment as well. And just notice the emphasis on the entirety of who we are, inside and outside. That's what God cares about. And so we're not surprised in the Sermon on the Mount when you read it and you see that Jesus' teachings, this is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. That there needs to be a consistency, he says, between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. Now, all that is the background to understand those very disturbing-sounded verses that I had Lindsay read at the beginning, Matthew 23. Let me just read them for you again. Jesus says near the end of his ministry, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first Clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Those are heavy verses. And I bet a lot of us might kind of wish they weren't in the Bible because they sound so dark and so heavy. But you need to understand that what Jesus is saying here, he's not, even though he has got a little edge to him in his conflict with these people that are about to kill him, he's not cursing them. A woe is not a curse. He's not angry and cursing them. A woe here, what we're seeing in Matthew 23 is the opposite of a beatitude, what we saw back in Matthew chapter 5, the, the famous beatitudes. A beatitude is a statement that's inviting you to see that if you orient your life towards God's, you will experience true life. A woe is the opposite of that. It's not a curse. It's a warning. It's a, it's a pleading to say, watch out. There is no life in this way of living, this way of splitness, this lack of wholeness. And for us, it would be super easy, I think we all do this, to just write off these verses as those are the Pharisees, those are those people. Get them, Jesus. Yeah, we love seeing Jesus take down the, the man, right? Jesus against the machine, right, or something, right? That's not the point of these verses. The Pharisees represent a very human problem. This is not a Pharisee problem. This is a human problem problem that all of us to some degree and some of us to a large degree experience this disjuncture between our outside and our inside. Now, our particular version of it may look a little different than the Pharisees. For us, it may be that we smile and act all nice, and then we 
slander and gossip people as soon as they walk away or later. It may be for us that we're married and we're not committing adultery, but we're flirting with other men and women and letting your eyes and heart wander, imagining what it would be like to be with someone else. It may be that at work you're kind and positive, but then when you get home you're a grouchy tyrant. My prayer for myself and for you all this morning is that God would begin to to leverage or to crack open a little bit more of self-awareness in us of whatever the ways are that you and I are living this, this split life. And one of the good ways to get at this for yourself is to pay attention to what you get upset about, that question I asked at the beginning. Because when we're angry and when we're upset, that reveals that something's going on. We like to say that anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is usually a response to some other emotion, and it's almost always fear and shame. So you may not think of yourself as a big, bad Pharisee, but can I invite you to look inside with honesty and ask what ways these verses apply to us as well? And here is actually the, the scariest and the most disturbing and most unsettling part of all of this is that often the most split people are church-going people. Because the way our sinful hearts are wired out of fear and shame, sadly, one of the ways, one of the most effective masks to protect ourselves and others from that fear and shame is the mask of religion. This was the Pharisee's problem. No Pharisee set out to become a hypocrite. No Pharisee said in the morning, five years from now, I want to be a total hypocrite. There was sincerity and a desire, but they learned to use their religious practice to actually be separate from God. And indeed, what I've noticed, especially in the last five years, this profound and tragic irony that often the people that are most intense about religion, especially religion of other people, those people are often the most disconnected from themselves. If you or I live our spiritual lives and a lot of it's marked by anxiety and being upset with other people, this is, the, this is the situation of the Pharisees. Underneath that, almost always, if not always, is some unresolved fear and shame that is manifesting itself in anxiety about others. And by contrast, those who are filled with the Spirit are made whole. And those who are filled by the Spirit are people of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Anxiety about other people's religion is not a fruit of the Spirit. If I were to ask you to define holiness, I think most of us would probably define holiness as like the absence of doing sinful things, or maybe doing some good things. And those are true. As the Holy Spirit works in us, we do 
don't sin in the same ways. I was going to say we sin less. I don't know that we really do. But we, don't, we do avoid some immoral things and we do grow. However, that's really the byproduct of what holiness really is according to God. Holiness is wholeness. Holiness is where the inside, where God is at work in the inside, and then that is manifesting itself on the outside. And if you think I'm making this up, just think back with me to one of the most famous verses in the Bible in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word that we're translating perfect there, it, it, might, it might sound to you like it means free from all sin or blemish. That's not what the word means. The word means whole or consistent or complete. That's how that word is used all throughout the Bible. It's the same idea of the Shema. It's being a wholehearted person. And why did Jesus say it that way? It's because he's riffing on, he's reapplying another very famous verse in the Bible, Leviticus 19.2, where God says to his people, be holy as I am holy. Well, the problem in Jesus' day was the Pharisees read that verse and they said, exactly, darn right. We need to be holy. And what they meant by that is what we tend to mean by it, which is I'm going to do all these external things that are good things, but I'm going to keep them on the outside. And Jesus says, you misunderstand. To be holy is to be whole. And that, I think, makes sense then of what he's saying again in Matthew 23. So here's the question. What in the world do we do? Because it is clear, if you're honest, that this is not true of any of us completely, that we are whole people. And as we've seen, just like Adam and Eve, we all have learned all these techniques of of hiding from fear and shame. And even sincere Christian disciples continue to struggle with all kinds of sins, obvious ones and hidden ones. We're all inconsistent. So what do we do? When we look honestly inside and see that this is not true of us, how do we respond? Well, the good news is that God has not left us stuck there. He has given us a way, and we can call this the solution, wholehearted confession. Since our fundamental human problem is lack of wholeness, The response to that is a wholehearted confession, both confession to God and confession to each other. The way to find wholeness is to start with this honest confession from the inside. Let me just read a couple of those verses again from Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside the cup and dish are still full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. First, clean the inside. Now, if you and I are tempted to think that that's just another self-improvement program, I think back to Pastor Kevin's sermon on the difference between trying and training. This is not just another self-improvement program because a self-improvement program, religious or not, is where you try to change your behaviors assuming that that'll just change your inside. Now, it's complicated, The human person is complicated because it is true that the things we do do affect who we become. As we do, we become. So the habits we develop do shape our hearts. That's for sure true. But the real way, the the starting point for change, according to Jesus, 
is from the inside out. Change happens when we clean the inside first. And God has given an amazingly beautiful, life-changing, easy and scary means of becoming whole, wholehearted confession. And there are many places we can learn what that looks like, but I thought I would just put before you today one of the most famous ones from Psalm 51, where David, King David, who has committed adultery and then had the woman's husband killed, and he's full of guilt, he's full of shame, he's full of fear, and then God graciously sends a prophet to, to make him wake up and see that it's him. And what does he do in that moment? He writes this psalm. And as I read it, I want you to make it your own and invite you to also pay attention to how much he talks about the importance of wholeness. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you'll not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering. Listen to this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Friends, this is, this is beautiful. This is an invitation for you and me to be honest before the God who has made us and who is happy to forgive us. This is an invitation to stop being conformed to the pattern of the world that says that who you are on the outside is what really matters and to be honest before the God who made you. And this message that God requires of us to be whole people would be horrible news if God were different than, as, than he is. If God were like us, petulant, unforgiving, resentful. But God constantly shows himself throughout scripture as being overflowing with love, abundant in kindness and forgiveness. And so, today, tomorrow, next week, in those moments when you become aware of your splitness in some area, you're conforming to the pattern of the world that focusing on the outside, not the inside, simply stop and turn to God in honest confession. He's, 
He's not going to be surprised. (laughs) He already knows this about you and me. He knows you better than you know yourselves, and he wants you to be whole. He does not want you to live a split life. He wants you to experience the life that comes from wholeness. So you can turn to him first thing in the morning. You can turn to him last thing at night, in the middle of your day when you're at a stoplight. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to go to a temple. He is happy for you to turn and confess your need for him. As Jesus reminds us, if we who are sinful parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And scripture invites us not only to confess our sins to God, but also to each other. That's a key part of becoming whole. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I'll not forget that several months ago, Pastor Brian and I were both here at church and there's a few of us here and somebody came to the door and said they needed to speak to a pastor. So I sat with them, started talking, Pastor Brian came over as well. And it turns out that this sincere, very broken man had recently become a Christian and he had been involved in drug addiction and alcohol addiction and he had made a mess of his life, but he had come to faith and he was going through a recovery process and he had confessed his sins to God and and come to faith in God. But he realized through the wise advice of, of his mentors that not only confessing to God, but also confessing to others was an important part of him becoming whole. And so we didn't know him, but he showed up to tell us that in a a fit of addiction some months earlier, he had stolen something from the church, something large, a trailer he stole. And it was gone now, nothing to be done about it. But he knew that an important part of his own healing was to not only confess to God, but to confess to others. And it was so beautiful. It was so sweet to be able to hear and to see his own healing coming about. You may be facing a situation right now where you need to talk to a pastor or counselor or a therapist, a safe friend, maybe to confess some sin, maybe just to express some fear, express some shame, something that you've done, something that's been done to you, to step into the light and find the freedom that comes from actually speaking to others. And after the service today, there'll be a couple elders up here if you want for anything, just to, to come and receive a blessing or a prayer or to, to share something or reach out to one of our staff or me, or we'll connect you with one of our lay counselors, that's a good thing to do. Confession to God and confession to each other should be a regular part of our spiritual lives here together. You don't have to be super spiritual to do so. You can simply turn to God. Now, last weekend, to wrap this up, I was in Texas and I met a man who had been very involved for decades uh, with the the Chuck Colson uh, Center for Worldview Stuff. And it reminded me of Chuck Colson's story. And I and I realized that most of you probably my age and older, you've probably heard of Chuck Colson. But I realized people probably younger than me, maybe 30s and below, maybe you don't know who he is. And I don't want you to forget his story. 
Chuck Colson was this very intelligent, high-powered lawyer in the 60s and 70s who became the chief legal counsel to President Nixon. So it's like the ultimate lawyering job. He's in the Oval Office all the time. He's doing all kinds of strategies and writing up briefs for all kinds of things. But he was well known for being ruthless, very intelligent and very, I guess, all the bad jokes you'd have about a lawyer. He was one of those kind of guys. But everything fell apart when Watergate happened and Nixon, you know, is had to leave office and several people got arrested and he did as well. It caught up with him. And in the midst of all that, while he was getting indicted, a friend gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and he read it and he was radically converted. And instead of all the shame and the hiding and all the cover-ups that he had spent several years trying to cover their tracks, he just confessed. He pled guilty and he went to jail. And God used that. He realized he needed not only to confess to God, but to confess to others. And God used that and used him in mighty ways. He became you know, very influential, started prison fellowship, involved in very, a lot of prison reform, wrote tons of books, started this Chuck Colson Center for Worldview, and just really became a testimony of the life-changing power of the gospel. Now, Chuck Colson's a very famous guy who experienced wholeness through confession to God and to others, but this isn't just for famous people. This is for you and me. This is for everyone. And I started today by asking what Jesus gets upset with, and the answer is primarily holiness without wholeness. But I want you to understand he's not mad at you today. He wants you to find life. And he's inviting you and me to turn away from this splitness and through confession find him. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.